And it's my pleasure to introduce Mark Wellman. Mark has been serving us uh, this week and the prior two. And I think every Sunday, Mark, you've had to worry a little bit about weather. Because Mark comes in from Randolph, New Jersey. So it's a fair drive. And, uh, and he has to think about the weather. And he's been able to make it every single Sunday. We're grateful. Mark's a PCA pastor. He has four daughters. Count them. Four. <laughs> and he's a good friend of Tony. And um, we thank you that you're becoming a good friend of ours. It's been fun to be here and to see this church at work over the last four years, or for three weeks, and uh, just to, to see what God is doing here. It's always somewhat inspiring to me as a pastor to go to a church where the pastor is absent and just kind of see the body of Christ, see the people of God working and uh, making the church happen in the absence of a pastor. Because sometimes when you're a pastor, you think it all rides on you, but really, it all rides on you. We're just here to help, and uh, all of us together are depending on on uh, Jesus to make things work. But uh, you know, you got to give Tony credit; he's become a good friend of mine. And you know, whatever you might think of Tony, he's obviously quite a bit smarter than everybody in this room because he arranged to be absent for the month of February. So, so you can congratulate him on his good judgment in that uh, regard. Today, I want to look at Psalm 16. I guess it's going to pop up there. But uh, th- this is one of my personal favorite psalms, just n- not to preach on or to teach on, but just for my own uh, personal life. Uh, a couple of years ago, I I did a lesson on this for a men's group I was a part of, and I explained this psalm this way, is is that this is the, uh, the post-midlife crisis psalm for men. And... Uh, only a few of you out there look like you have any idea what I'm talking about when I talk about a men's midlife crisis, but you know, yours, yours will come, and when it does, go back to Psalm 16, and it'll help you get grounded. It's about finding our safety, finding our security, finding our place at home in God's hands. If you want to follow along, I guess it's, it's up there. So Psalm 16, it's a Psalm of David. Keep me safe, my God, for in you... I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and apart from you I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure, and the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord, and with him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You've made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is God's word for God's children this morning. Let's pray. Father, there's all kinds of crises that people might be going through today. And I pray that you would show us now as we look at your word how you provide us with a firm foundation and the confidence and the hope and the strength if we will simply come to you and trust in you and make you our salvation. We pray this 
through the name of the one who incarnated this reality, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, it's, it's amazing when we think about life and we think about this world and we think of, of reports from the Middle East, as, as has been in the news this week, of uh, Christians being gunned down for their faith and, and the atrocities that, that various people are going through. And, and, you know, for every one we hear about, there's literally dozens or maybe even hundreds of cases in this world that aren't going to make the news of people who were living their faith, gathering for worship, and their places of worship were defaced, they were discriminated against, their homes were were uh, destroyed or vandalized, or they themselves were beaten up or even killed. It, it happens every day. You know, someone has said that there's more Christians dying for their faith in these years than there ever have been in the history of Christianity. And so, you know, at one level, you think about that, and you think about our lives. Here we are, and, and you know, our biggest struggle is, boy, it's, uh, it's snowing this morning. Do we really want to get up and go to church, or should we just stay home and... uh and, uh, you know, read, read the paper and maybe, uh, listen to Tim Keller online or something like that. But, uh, you guys all made it and I'm, I'm glad for that. And, and I know that even though when we think about martyrs in other countries, it makes our problems seem small. Our problems, our challenges are still real to us. And so what I want to talk about today is how we can find our security in God and the security that He offers us. Cause even for, Believers, middle class believers in America today, it seems like we're struggling with all kinds of worries and fears and insecurities. I know I am, and I, I would imagine you guys are as well. It's part of our human condition. And whether we're, we're concerned about our social security or our financial security, our job security, our health security, our security in various relationships that we're deeply dependent on, or just simply our, our personal security, it's something that seems to preoccupy everyone I meet, everyone who I get to talk to. And, you know, when you think about it, one of the most cutting things you can say about anyone you know, regardless of their age or their gender, is they're just a deeply insecure person, right? Because we all want to find and we all need to have a security outside of ourselves and bigger than ourselves that we can depend on in order to accomplish anything in life. And I think what this passage offers to all of us is a path toward that security and how it is that God himself can offer that security. And the first thing he says is we get that security when we're rightly related to the people of God. He says, as for the holy ones in the land, as for the saints in the land, they are the holy ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I'm not going to buy into that. I'm not going to bow down and worship those false gods. And he says that the important thing to him is his connection to the people of God. And this is important to understand when you're trying to understand or make sense of the Christian life. The Christian life, the Christian faith among religions is not a solo faith. It's a corporate event. And... Certainly, you become a Christian individually, but we practice our faith in community or we're not really practicing it. You know, there's some faiths, perhaps like Buddhism and Hinduism, that, that let, tend themselves to more of a solo spiritual practice. 
And just in the same way that there's some sports, perhaps like uh, gymnastics or track and field, that you can compete in individually. You can be a runner and compete individually. You don't really need a team. You can, you can do that on your own. But there's other sports, say football or baseball, where if you're not a part of a team, you really can't participate. You might think of yourself as a football player or a baseball player, but if you're not currently on a team, you're not really going to get the opportunity to play baseball or play football, right? And in the same way, to be a Christian means to be a part of something bigger than yourself because God has created us as relational individuals and we're all irresistibly influenced by the people who we're most closely connected with. That is the human condition. You know, when those of you who are parents... From it seems these days, from a young age, we're concerned about who our kids hang around with and who they choose as friends and who and who we can choose as friends for them, depending on their age. And, and we're worried about, you know, the peer pressure and everything that goes along with that. But one thing I've noticed as I've been in ministry is that peer pressure isn't something we just need to worry about for our adolescence. It's something we need to worry about for ourselves. Adults are just as susceptible to peer pressure and just as certain to be influenced by the people they're most closely connected to as our teenage kids are. I mean, I had a, an acquaintance in the town I live in who was a scoutmaster, a, a well-known guy who'd lived there for many, many years. He ended up going to jail. And the reason was is the little company that he was a part of had some federal contracts and they decided to cheat on them. They decided to commit some fraud on, on these contracts they were part of, and, and the, all of the, the whole executive committee ended up getting convicted of a crime for that. And it just showed me this, this guy, when I knew him, was, like I say, he was a, a scoutmaster. His son had been an Eagle Scout, and he just stayed involved in the Boy Scouts for, for a decade after that. And yet, he gave in to peer pressure when the people in his company, the men in his company, the people who were over him, the people who were under him, all agreed that they were going to cut some corners on these contracts they were a part of. He went along with it, and he ended up getting convicted. So you have got to be aware of and be concerned about and be self-conscious about the people who you're most closely connected with, because those are the people who are going to mold you. Those are the people who are going to shape you. And that's why the church is so important. That's why we plant churches. That's why we, we form these community groups and these accountability groups that, that I, I know are, are a big part of this church and, and why fellowship is essential to the Christian life because all of us are made by God, designed by God to be highly influenced by the people we're closest to. So David says he finds his security as he recommits himself to the people of God and says, as for the saints who are in the land, they are the holy ones in whom is all my delight. Your experience of the faith will be directly connected to your experience or your relationship with, with other people and other believers. So you've got to cultivate that. So that, that's the first point, the people of God. The second one is this, we need to recognize our personal limits. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Lord... You alone are my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. And the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. 
What's he saying there? He's saying, I recognize the boundaries within which my life exists, the boundaries within which I live and move, and I accept those and I embrace those and I'm willing and happy and delighted to live within those boundaries. And all of us, as we go through life, we have to recognize that we have potential and we have possibilities, but we also have limitations. You know, I had to realize I'm not going to grow to be 6'4", because this is the the height or the body that God gave me. You know, you might want to be a, a a player in the NFL or the NBA or something like that, but if God hasn't given you the tools, it's just not going to happen. And to live the rest of your life in regret for the fact that you didn't live out your ambition, the ambition you had as a 12-year-old to become a professional baseball player is to live a life that's lost its possibilities because all of us have limits, right? All of us have have things that we'd like to do that we're simply not going to get, that we're simply not going to do. But in, at the same time, all of us have opportunities. All of us have abilities. All of us have things we can do and should do and must do. And so for each one of us to live a life that's secure, to live a life that's free, we've got to recognize our limits and embrace those limits and then see the the opposite side of those limits, which is our opportunities and our abilities and make the most of those things. It's kind of like if you're training a dog, what does it take to make a dog happy? What, how is a, how does a puppy become free? It becomes free when it learns that it, if it goes into certain rooms, it can't climb on certain furniture, it can't chew certain things, it can't eat certain things, it can't jump on certain people, and when it's let out, it can't run away. You know, when, if, when a dog learns to come when it's called, a, a dog learns where it can go in the house and where it can't go, that's, that's when that dog gets to live freely. That's when a dog gets to be let off the leash. That's when a dog gets to have the run of the house, right? And in the same way, in our own life, when we accept our limits, when we accept the things that we can and can't do, that's when we begin to experience freedom. You know, I think a lot of the worry and a lot of the insecurity that we have comes from trying to become someone we're not meant to be and trying to do things we're not supposed to do rather than embracing what it is God has made us to be and what it is God has called us to do and to simply accept that and live in the light of that. In fact, one one pastor put it this way, that, that the key to freedom is to receive the gift of limits. Because with every limitation you have on your life, there's a flip side to it. There's a gift that comes with that limitation. There are certain freedoms and opportunities that come with the things that you are not or cannot do. For example, you know, when you're young, it's tremendously frustrating in a way to to be young because there's all these things that you'd like to do as a young person that you simply can't do yet because you're not you're not old enough. You don't have enough experience. You don't have enough seniority. You haven't acquired the degrees or the the ability the uh, the finances to do those things. But it's not, for a lot of us, it's not until we get older that we begin to appreciate how free we really were as young people, right? Some of you maybe are old enough to remember that and to look back and say, well, when I was young, that was when I was actually free. That's when I actually 
had opportunity. That's when I could actually do the things I wanted to do. Now, as we get older, some of those opportunities close, but other opportunities open up to us. There are some things older folks can do that younger people can't do. And so to receive the gift of limits is to recognize what we are and what we're not and to live in the light of what we are. You know, to be to be single, in, in, uh, especially in the American church today, some people say that, that that's a, a, a limitation. You know, what, why are you still single? People will ask you and things like that. But the Apostle Paul said that marriage is a limitation because once you're married, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you have to worry about pleasing your spouse. But when you're single, you're free to focus on pleasing God. So rather than perhaps focusing on the limitation of your personal situation, your personal status, ask yourself, what are the opportunities that come with this status and embrace that? Because that's how we, so much I think of our insecurity, so much of our fear, so much of our worry is when we're trying to be something that God hasn't made us to be. We're trying to do something that God isn't calling us to do right now rather than embracing who we are and what we are and living that out to the fullest and to the best of our abilities. We begin to find security when we recognize that God is only wants you to do what he is, has made you to do, and we simply have to discover that and live that out. So we have our personal limits, we have our connection to the people of God, and the third thing I want you to see here, and this is important, it's the, the power of the resurrection, because really this passage, you might be surprised to know, is, is actually all about Jesus. David says, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let my body see, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You've made known to me the path of life, verse 11. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. David, David's confidence, David's hope was that God would preserve his life. And if you know the story of the life of David, you know that David lived dangerously, right? From the very beginning when he showed up at, at the, in the war zone and said, if no one else wants to fight Goliath, I'll fight him. And then a couple years later, he was on the run while the king of Israel, Saul, wanted to kill him because he considered David a threat to him. And then David was a military leader who had all these conquests, conquered Jerusalem and settled Israel, and so he was always in the battlefield, always getting shot at, but God preserved his life through all of those things. And then late in life, if you know, he was run out of Jerusalem, run out of his temple by his son Absalom, who tried to pull off a coup. So, so there were people after him, people trying to kill him all through his life. And you know the story of David. God preserved him through all those attacks and he lived to a ripe old age. And I think one of the things that, that happens to all of us is we worry about things that might happen but simply haven't happened. And, and that creates a lot of insecurity. David had confidence because he knew God would preserve his life, even when people were shooting at him, even when the king of Israel wanted him dead, even when his son Absalom wanted him dead. God continued to preserve his life. And I think so, so often we, we panic about things that we need not panic for. I got a friend who had a terrible year over the last, uh, 
over the last year. First, he found out that his mother was, was terminally ill with cancer. And then shortly after that, the company he was working, working for, he was a young engineer. The, the company ran into some troubles. They downsized and let him go. And then his wife left him. And he had all these things kind of happen in one year. And, and he's, he went, went to another friend. He was, he was sharing me the, this story with me, and he was telling him all these things and how he just couldn't take any more of the struggle, any more of the suffering, any more of the loss than he had already, already faced. And his friend said to him, you know, this is pretty hard, but you're not going to die. You're going to live through this. You're going to move on. You're going to make it. You're going to be fine. And sometimes we need that. I've got, got another friend who's, who's a therapist, and if you call his office in off hours, it says, you know, he's got a lot of people in difficult circumstances who are his clients, his answering machine says, you've reached the office of Dr. Smith. If you'd like to make an appointment, please leave a message. But if this is an emergency, please hang up and call 911. <laughs> in other words, you're not going to find me. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to work through this with you. If it's really an emergency, you can talk to the EMTs or admit yourself to an emergency room. But other than that, um, we'll, we'll talk when you have your appointment. So I think sometimes we allow ourselves to panic about things we need not panic about, and we simply need to trust God in the midst of whatever uncertainty he has, whatever uncertainty it is that we face in the moment. But now, you know the story of David. David did live to a ripe old age, but eventually David, like everyone else, came to the end of his life, and he did pass away in peace in his, in his palace. Now, Peter, the apostle, went back to this, and he was, and I, I believe maybe Jesus himself told Peter what this really means. In the uh, Acts chapter 2, in the very first apostolic sermon, Peter actually quotes this passage, Acts, or quotes Psalm 16, and then he says, to, to the people he's speaking to. He says, this is Peter the Apostle speaking, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patri patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. So see what Peter's saying there in that message? He's saying that, really, this promise is about the son of David, Jesus, who would die but and be buried, but not be abandoned to the, to the grave. He would rise again. And what Peter is saying, and what what believers in Christ can know is ultimately our hope is not in the, in the hope that everything's going to work out at my job or everything's going to work out with my family or everything's going to work out with my finances or the, the treatments are going to work and I'm going to live for another three decades. Ultimately, your hope and my hope in the midst of whatever we're facing is the fact that we have a God who's entered into this world, who suffered like we've suffered, who's faced the same difficulties that we're facing, but he triumphed through all of them. See, it's part of being human, and we're all human here. We all dread pain and loss when it threatens us, whether 
whether that be, be uh, family problems or health problems or uh, professional problems, problems in our job, problems with our friends. And, you know, there's a part of, part of all of us, I think, that wants to believe that if we really pray and we really obey and we're really faithful to God and we're in his will and we're walking in the spirit, then he's going to spare us those problems. And if we take the job, if we pray about uh, taking a particular job, then that means once we take that job, we're going to succeed because it's God's will that we took this job and we, we really prayed hard about it. Or if we if we have a, a difficult health problem and we, we pray and we get the church to pray, that means certainly we're going to be healed and, and God's going to give the doctor success and everything is going to work out just fine. You know, that's I'd like to believe that life's that way. And I, I would imagine most of you would too. But let me tell you something. I've been in ministry too too long, and I've lived too long to believe that anymore. I had a, a friend, a, a colleague named Steve Brown, who used to open some of his pray, prayers this way. He'd say, Dear Lord, just want you to know you'd have more friends if you treated the ones you already have a little better. And... If you're a pastor, I mean, I'm, I'm a pastor, and if you've, you've walked through a lot of things with a lot of good people, a lot of faithful people, a lot of devoted people, you get to a place where you're praying that prayer because you just can't understand what God is doing in certain people's lives at certain times. But what this passage gives us, what the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus gives us is a better problem a better promise that in the midst of all these problems, we can look to him. In the midst of all these problems, we have the assurance that God has such power that he can take our greatest tragedies, our greatest losses, our greatest pains, our greatest betrayals, and he can reverse them. He can turn them upside down and he can bring new life through that loss and through that death. And that's what Psalm 16 is alluding to. That's the assurance we have when we read, he will not abandon you to the grave, nor will he let his holy one see decay. For the Christian, our tragedies will not ultimately be tragic because what's ultimate is the promise of the resurrection. And what Jesus did when he reversed the tragedy of his betrayal, when he reversed the tragedy of his loss, when he reversed the tragedy of his suffering and his death, was he gave everyone who believes in him, the confidence that whatever it is we might be facing, whatever it is, whatever news we might get tomorrow that will rock our world, we can have hope, we can have confidence because our Savior's come. He's entered into this broken world. He's suffered before us and he's conquered suffering and he's conquered death on our behalf. And that's where we find our security when our life is shaken, and believe me, God shakes our lives. God shakes every one of our lives. When your life is shaken, remember, he's just shaking you so you get down to the firm foundation, which is the hope that Jesus secured for you by dying in your place and by conquering death on your behalf. So how do we find security? We find it through our connection with the people of God. We find it as we accept our personal limits. We find it as we wrap our minds around the power of the resurrection. And finally, we find it as we embrace the promise of pleasure. Look at how 
he, he wraps this up. In verse 2 he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. And then at the very end he says this. This is kind of his, his summation. God, you have made known to me the path of life and you fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. What is this about? It's not a de- de- denial of our deepest longings, our deepest desires. It's a recognition that the ultimate fulfillment of the things you really, really want, the ultimate fulfillment of the desires, your deepest desires, is something that is not going to happen in this life, but it's something that is promised to you in eternity. You fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You know, God is placed in all of our hearts deep desires for love, for beauty, for luxury, for comfort, for different things that will give us joy. And, you know, we all have different tastes, different, we're all wired differently. We'll all define those things differently. And, but I think it's part of our human quest is a quest to have those desires satisfied, to find relationships where we'll finally feel loved and accepted for who we are, to find a home that is beautiful and comfortable on our own terms to to enjoy a meal with people we love and of the food that we really love all of those things are part of our those are those desires are the things that move us that drive us and and that inspire us and for some of us some of those things will work our whole life and will strive our whole life and will try our whole life but we might never ever get there. I had a, a friend who shared with me a story His uh, when he was middle-aged, sort of past middle-aged. His kids were out of the house, and the corporation he worked for did a restructuring, and they said, well, if you want to have a job next year, you're going to have to move to this city. And uh, it was upsetting to him and his wife, but he didn't feel he could turn them down, so they were... they they accepted the relocation. And, you know, these corporate relocations, sometimes you're under a little bit of pressure. And so his wife came out for a long weekend. They stayed in a hotel, looked at 20 houses with a real estate agent. At the end of the weekend, they made a offer on a house that was acceptable to them. It was accepted. And, and the husband's feeling kind of accomplished. You know, the way men are, okay, we got that checked off our list. Now let's go call the movers and, and move on. And then he realized slowly, probably a lot too late, that his uh, wife was not feeling so good about everything. And, and finally, he came around and said, so what, what, what's the matter here? What, what are you so upset about? We, we've got a house. We've got this figured out. We've got, we've got our plan uh, is coming together here. And she said, well, I just realized this weekend that I'm just never going to live in my dream house. And it was just one of those moments where you just realize, well, we're going to get another house in another neighborhood, but it's just not not the house that I pictured when I was a little girl. It's not the house that I visualized us one day moving in to after our wedding day, but it's just just another house. And sometimes that happens for us. We set our hearts and our minds and our lives on these goals, and they prove unattainable. I think the only thing that's worse than this and I see this actually more, is people actually get the thing they've set their heart on. They actually get the thing they've devoted their life to. And then they realize 
that it's just not enough. They get the dream house and they decorate it exactly the way they always wanted their home to be decorated and they realize their family is just as miserable in this dream house as they ever were. And they realize this really wasn't the thing that's going to to uh, satisfy my life. So this is the challenge of life, is we have these desires, we have these longings, and sometimes, I, I think particularly for Christians, we're, we're conflicted because we, we look at the things of this world that we want, or maybe are the career ambitions we want, or the homes we want, or the things we want to accomplish, or the things we want to acquire, and we say, is that really what God wants me to do? Is this really the godly thing, or the, the right thing to pursue? And we're not sure, because... What do we do with these desires? What do we do with these opportunities that God places before us? I think what God wants to, what God wants us to do with our unrealized desires and with our realized desires is to recognize that none of those things are ultimately going to make us whole, but all of them can point beyond themselves to something bigger and greater. You know, we, you get to the perfect home in the perfect neighborhood. You decorate it exactly the way you always wanted to. And then you realize, my life's still not perfect. But it won't be perfect here and now. It can't be perfect in this broken world. Or you come to the place where my friend's wife came, where she says, I guess I'm never going to live in my dream house. And you realize that's because in this world, all of your dreams won't come true. And sometimes your dreams will be shattered. Some of you might be familiar with the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, when I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can ultimately satisfy, maybe that should lead me to understand that I was not created for this world that there's things in my heart, there's things in my life, there's things in my soul that are only going to be satisfied in another world. So what the Bible tells us is don't settle simply for the what this world has to offer. Use your frustrations, your frustrations what you do with what you do get and what with what you can't get to point beyond this world to a better world. You fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's the promise of God, is that this world is just a prelude. And we serve a risen Savior who, will one day, who, who lived and died so that one day our best desires will be fulfilled and will be satisfied by Him. You know, I think it's a, it's a good symbol in our church that when we partic- participate in the Lord's Supper, we have a tiny little cracker and a little thimble of grape juice. And that's supposed to signify and symbolize the wedding feast of the Lamb. And I think that that can remind all of us that the most opulent meal you'll ever have, the greatest party you'll ever be a part of, is just a thimble of grape juice and a small cracker compared to the feast you're going to one day be welcomed into when you come to the wedding feast of the Lamb, when you're ushered into the presence of the King. 
And after that party, after that party that's going to surpass the greatest reception, the greatest meal you've ever had, he's going to say, look, you know, the only perfect carpenter who ever lived has been working on your new house for thousands and thousands of years. And I just can't wait to show it to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts to look beyond what this world has to offer and to see that you've created us for something greater, for something better. And as we're frustrated by the things we don't get and frustrated by the things we do get, lead us back to Jesus and let him satisfy our soul. We pray in his holy name. Amen.